It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Well, I tell you what, folks, I'm a happy camper today because I'm not alone in the studio. But let me just say right off the bat, my voice is not improving, but I do have a confirmed appointment at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for later this month. So I'll give you the report on that. Well, anyway, Rich, it's good to have you back here with us. Well, thank you, Dad. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be. I'm glad you're here with your good, vibrant voice. That sounds a lot better than mine, that's for sure. Well, they're going to have a good look at it at Mayo. Now, you were in Memphis. Tell me about that. It, I was. I, the, just this last week, I was in Memphis for the MLK 50 conference. Uh, last Tuesday and Wednesday, and that is 50 years since the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. So we were back, and as you know, you took our family there right after it happened 50 years ago. Yeah, 50 years ago. Uh, you were pretty young. I was 12 years old then, and I remember that. It made a powerful impression on me. So if you were 12, your sister would have been 14, and then your other sister would have been 10, and, and your little brother eight. Uh, would have been 8. I wanted all four of our children, and surely, of course, my wife was along. I wanted them to know this is history, and I wanted them to feel it and to see it and to never forget it. Now, the reason Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was at the Lorraine Motel is because other hotels and places to stay would not permit uh, and the black person to stay there. Now listen, this is not an indictment on Memphis alone because all over America. I remember in the 1950s when Nat King Cole and the Mills Brothers and others would be the headliners in the great grand ballroom dining room there at the Fairmount Hotel. In San Francisco. In San Francisco, and yet they could not spend the night in that hotel. Isn't that amazing, folks? My, my, my. Here's the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King. I have a dream. That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Yeah. How important, Rich, is it to have a dream? Well, it's, it's important to have a dream, but more importantly than that is to have a biblical dream. Yeah. And that's what was so powerful about Dr. Martin Luther King's messages is that he tied them back to the Bible and challenged us to live as Christians. And, you know, Jesus talks about, uh, and the Bible speaks of uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Those you, are the two great commandments. I tell you what, folks, you're absolutely right. First of all, the rule book is the Bible. The rule book is a Bible. It's not what some politician says. The rule book is the Bible. Like somebody said years ago, you don't have to rewrite it. You just have to reread it and read it and read it until it sinks in. Now, listen, we talk about a dream. Here's a song I want us to all hear now. If you don't have a dream, 
How can your dream come true If you don't have a dream Where's your life headed to God has a plan For everyone it seems But you'll never be The best you can be If you don't have a dream If you don't have a dream The chance you will lose God wants to bless People just like you If you don't have a dream There's only one thing to do Put your faith in Jesus Your life He'll redeem If you don't Have a dream So whatever Jesus, your best, and reach for the stars. If you don't have a dream, life will pass you by. The things God can do, you will be surprised. He loved you so much. On a cross he gave his life Make today be a day That counts for eternity If you don't have a dream If you don't have a dream How can your dream come true? If you don't have a dream Where's your life headed to? God has a plan For everyone it seems But you'll never be The best you can be If you don't have a Doesn't that apply to everyone, everyone uh, that is in the body of Christ? Those people who say they know the Lord as their Savior Mm -hmm. and they're his children, it doesn't matter what the color is, for goodness sake. Can't we love each other and get along and worship him by being kind to each other? Yes, and you you need to make sure that your dream is a biblical dream, and it's in accordance with the Word of God. And that's what I appreciate about the the original civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King Jr., is that it was uh, based on the Bible. And what you see oftentimes today are those from the outside that are coming in to try to hijack that movement for a different agenda. And take it in the direction of, uh, of homosexuality and other types of perversion and sin, which is not in accordance with the Bible, and certainly that's not something that God will bless. Indeed, that's something that God will judge. So we need to always keep our eyes on Jesus. I was looking through our archives, and I found something 
that really speaks to this moment right now. Folks, we're talking to you. This is our Bot Radio Network family. And uh, so we just want to have a little family talk here around the dinner table, so to speak. Here's Jonathan Alexander. He's talking about the faith of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Hi, I'm Jonathan Alexander, the Director of Public Policy for Liberty Council and Liberty Council Action. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is widely celebrated today as the most notable icon of the civil rights movement. But perhaps he ought to be celebrated first and foremost for his role as a preacher and as a Christian pastor. King's role as a Christian minister was at the heart of everything that he sought to achieve in the civil rights movement. As the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Dr. King based not only his preaching, but also his political philosophy and his commitment to justice on his religious beliefs. Dr. King came from a deep legacy of faith, and his faith was one that saw its best fruition in the moments of crisis, adversity, courage, and the hope of a better tomorrow. These principles resound deeply today as we celebrate the life of this man who changed America for the better. For Dr. King, faith was the source of his courage, especially in the moments, the difficult moments of the civil rights movement. In one sermon, King shared how the Lord fortified him in his fight for justice. King said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now and faltering and losing my courage. And I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to be weak. Dr. King said it seemed that at that moment he could hear an inner voice saying to him, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. King said it's as if he heard the voice of Jesus saying that I will never leave you, never leave you alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Dr. King did not simply hold on to this abiding faith personally, but he also challenged the members of the civil rights movement to also maintain this faith. In his autobiography, when explaining just what motivated the participants of the civil rights movement, he wrote, it was Jesus of Nazareth that stirred the Negroes to protest with the creative weapon of the love of Christ, furnishing the spirit. Dr. King said the nonviolent movement was an expression of Christianity in action. Today, Reverend King's dreams are embodied in our continued desire for liberty and justice to be the theme of our society. But for many, his legacy is one not just of rights, but of one motivated by faith. It is that same faith that compels ministries and organizations and people of faith all over the country to give so much of themselves so that our families and our communities are strong and prosperous. Expressions of this faith are protected by the First Amendment. They're practiced by millions of adherents all over the world and are the deep and abiding identity of a people that in the borrowed words of Dr. King, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. Yeah, that's it, isn't it, Rich? That's it. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me now, well, you, heard, you heard some wonderful preachers. Uh, I did, I it did. It was at the big Memphis Convention Center. There's about 3,800 people there, and a lot of young oh, people, Dad. This was not what people saw on television. No, 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 no. 
This no. was at the convention center. You see, folks, you've got to visualize. If you were not there, you've got to visualize what was going on. Because at the great Memphis Convention Center were some great right. pastors and right. speakers. Right. This past week in Memphis, there were a lot of different meetings taking place, a lot of different ways that different groups, different people were trying to either commemorate and memorialize uh the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, or or maybe even to hijack it and to take it in a different direction for their own particular agenda. But this meeting was a powerful, gospel-centered meeting with about 3,800 people, a lot of young people from all over the country, and we heard some powerful gospel preachers like Crawford Loritz, Pastor Steve Gaines of the Bellevue Baptist Church, Rufus Smith, who I really came to love, and he's also a pastor there in the Memphis area. Uh, and he's got a well, how big is his church? Well, if, I don't know exactly, but, a, but they tell me a quite a very, very large church. A couple of thousand? Well, I think a, quite a few more than that. But I know you were texting me, and you said, this gentleman is fantastic. Yeah, Rufus Smith, and we're going to hopefully air his message on Complete Story here in the not-too-distant future. But then also H.B. Charles, John Piper from Minneapolis, John Perkins from Mission, Mississippi, down by Jackson, and so many others that were there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and have a message of unity that we're all together as uh, creatures of God uh, and that there's one blood, and that's really the biblical answer to racism, is an understanding of who God is yeah. and how he created us and how Jesus came to redeem us all unto him and then to come together at the foot of the cross. Yeah. One race, one blood. That's right. All right. Now, listen, I want to, folks, because you mentioned to me, Rich, when you got back from Memphis, something about the Good Samaritan. And it reminded me of something Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here it is. One day a man came to Jesus and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed bound on the side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the vow and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, 
we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by. And he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Man, Rich, isn't that something? That's isn't right. that something? Now, you see, that's not a matter of color. That's a matter of conscience. And, uh, and absolutely. Wasn't that something? That's right. You know, the lawyer uh, that asked Jesus, he said, "Which who is my neighbor? And Jesus turned it around and said, who was a good neighbor to that man in need? Oh. So it's not about who they are, but it's about who you are and what you do to show your uh, willingness to be a good neighbor to those people that the Lord places in your yeah. way. Well, I want to say to everyone listening, Bot Radio Network 
is absolutely committed to serving the Lord's people, absolutely to help them grow and be discipled in the knowledge of his word and then apply it. Now, one of the people, and we don't have time, is Dr. King's niece, Alveda King. And she is so pro-life, isn't she? That's right. Having had two or three abortions herself, I'll tell you, when she gave her heart to the Lord wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. her life is devoted now to saving the life of the unborn. That's right. Isn't that and, something? And we want our listeners and everybody to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. All right. Now, listen, I want the folks to hear this as well, because, folks, let me tell you something. Dr. King was killed, and he was pretty young, as a matter he of fact. He was 39. Him. Oh, man. All right, now listen, and of course I'm an old-timer, but but we're all going to die. Listen, folks, let me tell you something. Unless the Lord tarries, that your, your death is certain, without a doubt, or your home going, I could put it that way, much better. So it isn't whether you will die, it's when you will die. Now here is something else. And are you ready for Here's your death? Here's something else from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I want you to hear. While sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, you, Martin Luther King, and I was looking down writing, and I said yes. The next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams say. I received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. 
I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. Negroes in all Bennett, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountain park. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Rich, you see, it's not how long your life is, but it's what you do with the life you have. My goodness, Dad, that is the that is the mountaintop speech that he delivered there at Mason Temple the very night before he was assassinated. All right, now listen to this, Fifty years ago. Did you know that Billy Graham and Martin Luther King were friends? 
I'll tell you what, there's a lot there that is not part of people's knowledge. Listen to this as uh, Martin Luther King is praying. Here it is. I want you to hear it. Delighted to have from Montgomery, Alabama, Dr. Martin Luther King, the minister of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Heavenly Father, out of whose mind this great cosmic universe has been created, we come recognizing our dependence on thee. We stand amid the forces of truth and yet we deliberately lie. We stand amid the compelling urgency of the Lord of love as exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. And yet we live our lives so often in the dungeons of hate. For all of these sins, oh God forgive. We thank thee this evening for the marvelous things which have been done in this city through the dynamic preaching of this great evangelist. We ask thee, O God, to continue blessing him, give him continued power and authority. And as we listen to him tonight, grant that our hearts and spirits will be open to the divine inflow. All of these things we ask in the name of him who taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yeah. All right. There you go, Rich. Uh, this is the end of this broadcast, and we want to bring it to you folks as a public service. Now, listen, don't forget, our listener comment line is 800-345-2621. 800-345-2621. This is Dick and Rich Bot with his chapter of the complete story. For you folks, see you later. See you later.